Good morning, everyone. Vessel, you and the other elders haven't done too much work yet. That starts Saturday and Sunday. The elders will be doing all of the cooking on Sunday and all of the prep on Saturday. Really, really good to be with you this morning, guys. Uh, we are in the final week of our series, In His Image. And right up front this morning, I'm going to give a disclaimer. This morning, we're considering what happens when our self-image and sexuality gets even more shattered than it already is from the fall. And one of the most destructive things that can happen, completely undermining our self-worth and understanding of who we are, is sexual assault. What can we do? What can the gospel do when our image is completely shattered through something this horrific? And so this morning, we're going to be looking at one of the most horrendous stories in Scripture, the rape of Tamar by her half-brother Amnon. We are not going to glorify evil by overly focusing on the true horror of the situation, but I'm also aware that those in the room who've experienced this kind of ordeal can find this very hard to listen to. If you feel like this might be too much for you, in just a moment I'm going to pray and you can quietly slip out. People will have no idea if it's to go to the bathroom, grab a drink of water, check on your kids, take a phone call. You can slip out while everyone has their eyes closed or at any point, no one will know why you're leaving because people are always moving in and out. Before we pray, let me just explain why we would even speak about something so horrific and there are a number of reasons, but I want to highlight one quickly before I pray. And I'm going to give you that reason through some experts in the field, because I'm not qualified to make this determination. Susan Sontag writes, because the person in pain is ordinarily so bereft of the resources of speech, it is not surprising that the language for pain should sometimes be brought into being by those who are not themselves in pain, but who speak on behalf of those who are. Though there are very great impediments to expressing another sentient's distress, so are there also very great reasons why one might want to do so, and thus there come to be avenues by which this most radical private of experiences begins to enter the realm of public discourse. Justin and Lindsay Holcomb, um, in their book, Rid of My Disgrace, Hope and Healing for Victims of Sexual Assault, I'll be referencing them a couple of times today, they say, describing the pain is a way to normalize how victims are feeling rather than to alienate them by not talking about it at all. And Pastor Eugene Peterson writes, putting a name to pain is a first step in recovery from it. The metaphors give handles to the suffering so that it can be grasped and handed over to God. And so what these authors are getting at is that in some point of my journey to healing, my pain has to be handed over to the only one big enough to deal with it, God himself. But in our society, pain, especially the trauma of sexual assault, can be so foreign or stigmatized or hushed up or considered shameful that I feel alienated and lacking in resources, unable without help to even express myself to God. One of the ways God provides for us in those situations is his spirit that intercedes for us with groans that we can't understand. Another way he provides for us is in the safety of this space. 
in God's presence with God's people where even the most evil of things can be faced because God reigns supreme and his love is present in the form of his people. And then in facing these things and naming them together in light of the greatness of God over even the most evil of things, we grow in our ability to handle whatever portion of that we experience ourselves. As we sang just a moment ago, the darkness bows to him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, there is the concrete, absolute reality of what you have achieved for us in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And then there's our understanding and our lived experience. And so often those two things can be quite far apart, especially when our understanding of who we are has been assaulted and shattered. And so my prayer this morning is for a healing and an aligning of how we see ourselves with who you have made us to be, what you have done for us in Jesus, so that we may praise your name and live according to your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. We're all made in God's image. For the last time in this series, you probably have it memorized by now, Genesis 1, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the air, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. The root of our identity, men and women created by God in his image, to represent who he is and to rule on his behalf. And throughout this series, we've seen the many ways, both in and out of the church, that we get our identity wrong. Particularly, the primary beauty of our individual distinctions when it comes to imaging God, namely sex and gender. But it's about more than just getting it wrong. There's a vicious cycle. Something is broken inside of us, which is why we get it wrong, and then as we get it wrong, we become even more broken. And that seems to apply especially to the area of our sexuality. We see this in Genesis 2 and 3. After God creates mankind, male and female, in his image, he gives them the task of bringing order and unity to his creation, starting in what is referred to as a garden. We today would probably call it a national park. And they enjoy unlimited access to all of God's goodness, just with one stipulation. You know the story. The point is what happens after they disobey God. Their ruling on God's behalf, imaging him as male and female, is compromised. Sin partially shatters the image of God inside of us. Chapter 3, verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. For the first time in human history, shame based on their sexual characteristics. I mean, no one is imagining that they suddenly noticed each other's feet, right? Immediately after sin, we try to fix it. The shame and nakedness we feel, they make coverings out of fig leaves. God looks for us, we hide because our relationship with God is broken. God asks what happens, we blame shift because our relationship with each other is broken. 
And then verse, 20, uh, verse 16, to the woman he said, I will make your pain in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, what exactly your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over for you is beyond the scope of me unpacking this morning. But essentially, this is the start of conflict between men and women in marriage and having children. God sacrifices an animal covering our nakedness himself and promises the defeat of the serpent through the offspring of the woman, Jesus. That's the initial shattering of our identity. And we can see just how tied into our sexuality it is. As we are created, male and female, to image God, so once that image is distorted through sin, immediately what distinguishes us as male and female brings shame and has to be covered up. And the, the unity of marriage that should represent a God who is both different, Father, Son, and Spirit, but one has its oneness broken as the different male and female lose their oneness. Now, this is important. We still have intrinsic dignity, value, and worth. We are made in God's image. But being cut off from God and one another, we no longer rightly rule by His Spirit, representing Him in love and justice and mercy. This is the initial fracturing of identity and sexuality, the fracture that leads to every other way we get it wrong. But it's initial because others follow. And so all of us need a restoration of our identity in Jesus, whether we have or haven't experienced any of the horror I'm speaking about this morning. The passage I'm about to read is shocking, and if you're new to church and following Jesus, it might shock you that this is even in the Bible. But it's in Scripture because the Bible is the most true book ever written about the triumph of God over even the worst of what sin and evil can conjure. And so the Bible is not afraid to go there. Through passages like this, we see the depths of the pit of human depravity that Jesus plunges into as he claws and drags out of sin and pain and shame and despair those who are his. 2 Samuel 13. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man, not a compliment. He asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat it from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it for five hours. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. 
And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him. Don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where would I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep you from being married, from me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him. Sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servants and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing an ornate robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. And Absalom never said another word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. We're going to use this passage to look at the shattering of our identity in sexual assault, how we try to rebuild our own identity, the actions of David and Absalom, and finally the healing that only Jesus can bring. There is a lot we could focus on in this passage because of the devastating effects of sexual sin, both the perpetrator and the one who experiences it. I'm going to name some of the effects without going into detail because we don't have time to go into detail. Each of these is a separate topic on its own and needs to be worked through. Sarah, who leads our redemption groups, which are groups for people who are working through various different struggles, said this to me on this topic. She said, the healing journey isn't necessarily an easy, linear sprint. Abuse destroys physical, biological, social, and spiritual boundaries and sets most people on very confused trajectories. Emotional problems further deepen as a result of a lack of intimacy with God and not addressing the specific sin that torments a person. It is a lie to believe that there is no hope or help. If you have experienced sexual assault, these are things you do need to work through pastorally and very possibly also with a professional counselor or psychologist. Just in this short passage, here is some of what Tamar goes through and what those who have lived through sexual assault experience. This is what, hap <clears throat> this is what happens to her internal sense of identity. It's not what is actually true, but it's real for her because it's what she's living. What we see is her externalizing what is happening internally. There's now a congruence between how others see her, blessed daughter of the king, and how she now sees herself because of this shattering that has occurred. So what we see her doing is she, she tries to bring the external, how people view her, into alignment with the internal by radically shattering her external image in the same way as her internal image has been shattered. She puts ashes on her head. 
humiliation and disgrace. Ashes from a fire represent destruction. She puts them on her head, the utter destruction of her identity and self-worth. As the ashes run down her face, they streak and stain her skin, damage her clothing, ruin her makeup. To see her is to see a woman utterly destitute, ruined, without resources or hope. The outward symbols of the humiliation and disgrace that is now her inward reality. She tears her robe, the same kind of ornate, technicolor, beautiful robe that Joseph wore. Beautiful, special, designating her status as a princess, torn off because she's no longer special, dishonored, all privilege and respect stripped away. That's how she views herself. Hands on her head, a symbol in that culture of shame. Elsewhere in scripture, used to show that you've trusted in the wrong person and they've let you down and betrayed you. She enters her brother's bedroom. She trusts him. Trust put to shame, shame internalized. Rightfully, it belongs on him, but it becomes her reality. Other things counselors report, denial, anger, guilt, despair, fear, anxiety, depression. Justin and Lindsay write, sexual assault is uniquely devastating precisely because it distorts the foundational realities of what it means to be human. Embodied personhood is plundered. Sexual expression is perverted and used for violence. Intrapersonal trust is shattered and disgrace and shame are heaped on the victim. While outwardly nothing may change, internally everything is broken. So Tamar breaks everything outward. There's a shattering of her sense of identity. In the fall, our sexuality and identity is distorted because of sin, but we remain male and female made in God's image. Sexual assault is another attack on our identity. Again, we remain male and female made in God's image, but I get confused. Nothing can change the reality that I'm made in God's image, but I doubt. I give up entirely. I come to see myself as disgraced, ruined, shamed, dishonored. And I say I because each one of us to a lesser or greater degree experiences this. Sexual assault is the apex of this. The brokenness all of us experience in our sexuality and identity. Orders of magnitude greater. With shame and disgrace and our self-identity ruined, what is the hope? What is the way out? The first obvious obvious but utterly unhelpful solution is to simply snap out of it. Just pick myself back up, get over it. But that is virtually impossible if I've suffered sexual assault. The whole comes right. The disintegration of one's perception of self and world disrupts one's normal pattern of functioning. After a traumatic event such as a sexual assault, Many victims experience intense emotional distress and frequent flashbacks of the assault as they struggle emotionally and cognitively to adjust to their sense of reality. The disintegration of one's perceptions of self and world disrupt one's normal pattern of functioning. The ability to simply pick myself up by my bootstraps does not exist. Which brings us to the second solution that's proposed. If I can't just get over it, and the issue is that my view of myself has been catastrophically damaged, then the solution must be gradually, if necessary, improve my self-image. 
Where I view myself as weak, I can speak strength to myself. I replace negative self-talk with positive. I'm not a victim, I'm a survivor. I'm not damaged, I'm whole. I'm not disgraced, I'm beautiful. Justin and Lindsay cite three different research works as follows. Research shows that self-help statements have been found to be ineffective and even harmful by making some people with low self-esteem feel even worse about themselves in the long term. As a matter of fact, positive self-statements frequently end up reinforcing and strengthening one's original self, negative self-perception they were trying to change. Tragically, positive self-statements have more impact on people with low self-esteem than on people with high self-esteem, and the impact on people with low self-esteem is negative. The consequences are that positive self-statements are likely to backfire and cause harm for the very people that are meant to benefit, people with low self-esteem. They continue in their own words, in an attempt to counter your negative self-image, others may encourage you to see yourself in a story of self-love, self-reliance, and self-healing. But the identity that comes from that story is even darker disgrace and even more pain in the long term because the self-made illusions cannot be maintained. We should not construct our identities on shallow, wish-fulfillment, positive statements that we have no power to make into a reality in our lives. The world will answer your questions of wealth with affirmations of self-worth, self-esteem, and self-love. Your culture will tell you to love yourself and then and only then can you rebuild a fractured identity and love others. Sound familiar, right? Maybe you've heard the message you can, that you can't truly love others until you learn to love yourself and that a lack of self-worth is the basis of most psychological problems. These replies are insensitive to a suffering individual and do not answer the underlying problems of a distorted self-image. How do you receive or give love and affirmation when you believe that you are unlovable, dirty, worthless, impure, and corrupt? As followers of Jesus, this doesn't surprise us. My identity is not just shattered through sexual abuse and other things I experience. I'm born with my sexuality and my identity broken, made male and female in God's image to reflect who he is, sinner by nature and choice. I'm born with a fractured identity. And so here's what happens. Well-meaning people, well-meaning Christians, I encounter someone who's experienced sexual abuse who says, I feel shame because of what happened to me. And so I rightfully say there's no shame on you. The only shame is on the person who did this to you. That's correct. And then I say something like, repeat after me. I am a person of honor, not shame. That's the problem. Even though no shame attaches to me because of what happened in the assault as it was done to me, not by me, I don't believe myself when I say I am a person of honor, not shame. I don't believe myself even if I have 100% dealt with the aftermath of the sexual assault and got rid of any of the sense of shame because of another's actions. I don't believe myself because it's not true. Deep down inside, I know it. Completely apart from what has been done to me, I have shame. I have a fractured identity because I'm born into sin and I continue to sin. And so trying to build my identity on positive self-talk and positive self-image with or without sexual assault doesn't work, probably just leads me to more shame. And if you have been through sexual assault, well, now how do you even tell what is external shame and what is internal shame? And it's just a confusing mess. 
And it's not just the internal confusion, it's also external expectations. I learned this speaking to someone last week. We were talking about the reality that positive self-talk doesn't work, and they told me that there's another negative side of this. The people, my friends, who are trying to get me to be positive, well, they now expect me to live out this positivity. So there's my internal sense of shame because of what's happened to me that, that I actually shouldn't carry, and then my internal sense of shame because I can't get over this, and now there's additional external shame because my well-meaning friends expect me to be better. They've told me what I need to do to be better, and I don't. And so I put on a mask to show them what they expect to see, and the shame just goes deeper and deeper inside. It's messed up because we are all messed up. On a side note, a lighter note, very much not in the context of sexual assault, Often when I'm speaking to someone, they'll say something to me like, I feel so rotten or I feel like God shouldn't love me. And I usually respond with something like, well, you should feel rotten. And you actually should feel like God shouldn't love you. Those in my life group will tell you it's true. I do it gently, guys. But then I'll say something like, and God loves you despite your rottenness and despite your sinfulness and despite the fact that apart from the sheer magnitude of his fountain of love and grace that flows unceasingly to the undeserving, you would never see that love. But he is that fountain that overflows with love and grace. And you get to grow in beauty as you receive that. Okay, I don't normally say it like that. I wrote that down. <laughs> but you get the point. We're going to come back to this idea you are who you are loved by. You are who you are loved by. So, point one. When my identity and sexuality is fractured through assault, two ways I try to fix it. Point three, the effect of others on my identity. When I read this passage, the first thing that really jumped out at me and has haunted me ever since is verse 21. When King David heard all of this, he was furious. I'm haunted by this verse because David stuffed up. David royally stuffed up. His daughter gets raped by her brother, and what does he do? He gets furious. Congratulations, David. You had an emotional response to the grossest of evil in your own family, an emotional response, and you did nothing. You did nothing. Do you know what else we know about Tamar apart from what I read to you? Do you know how her life ends? Her, her life ends here. She doesn't die, but her life, her story ends here. This is her story. She's raped by her brother. She experiences grief and heartache and shame and disgrace. In verse 20, Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. That's it. That's the end of her story. Her father David does nothing. She dies whenever, we don't know, it doesn't matter. Her story ends here. The rest of it is just the repetition of desolation in the house of her brother. David's stuffed up. When his daughter needed him most, he did nothing but have an emotional outburst, not even in front of her. Why does David do nothing? We don't know. On the one hand, of all people, he should have understood the grace of God that can come into sexual sin, having personally experienced God's forgiveness and redemption. But just as much, he might have felt personally responsible. God predicted, and we aren't surprised, 
that the sons of a man who took another man's wife themselves engage in sexual sin. Remember, Tamar is David's daughter by Bathsheba. Bathsheba, who was married to someone not named David. Bathsheba, who was simply bathing in the river with no idea that the king was watching from a balcony. Bathsheba, who was brought to this king with power of life and death over her and told to remove her clothing. One of the things we've learned in the 21st century is that sexual assault doesn't always involve violence. It can also involve social situations and power dynamics where one person simply has no option but to allow the other person to proceed. Consent is not even possible in that situation. Perhaps David doesn't do anything because of this guilt despite knowing God's forgiveness. Tamar's brother Absalom does something if you read to the end of the chapter. Eventually he lures Amnon away from the city, gets him drunk and kills him which then leads to him running for his life and sets off a chain of events that leads to civil war across all of Israel and ultimately his own death. Because a violent response to violence only ever leads to more violence. But he doesn't engage with his sister other than telling her to be quiet and don't take this to heart. Gee, thanks, Absalom. Perhaps David did nothing because he viewed his daughter as defiled. Later on, during that civil war with Absalom, David ends up fleeing Jerusalem for his life. He leaves 10 concubines, kind of like formalized mistresses, behind in the capital to look after things. And when Absalom arrives in the city on the advice of his shrewd counselors, he demonstrates his power over his father by taking these women who belong to his father and setting up a tent on the roof of the palace where everyone can see, and one after the other they go into the tent. And consent in that situation is not possible. When David finally retakes the city, what is his response? Well, he takes those 10 women, puts them under house arrest where they live out the rest of their lives as if they were widows. Their story ends. No hope, no redemption. Justin and Lindsay write, there appears to be a societal impulse to blame traumatized individuals for their suffering. Doing otherwise would threaten our cherished conceptions that the world is essentially just and that people are free, self-determining, and basically good individuals responsible for their destinies. In short, we sacrifice those who suffer so we can maintain our illusion of autonomy and safety. Ultimately, we don't know why David did nothing. Eugene Peterson writes, intimacy is a requirement of wholeness. John Mark Comer notes that interpersonal sins of which sexual assault is the worst require interpersonal healing, but that the default status of someone who's been sinned against in this way is to cut off interpersonal relationships. For healing to take place, all the trust that I had and was destroyed must be rebuilt, not necessarily to that person, but in my ability to trust. All the intimacy that I've shut up must be regained. All my openness to others that has been shut off must be reopened. And her brother and particularly her father don't reach out at all. Her father, David. And not just her father, David. King David. God's anointed one. The one through whom the blessing and mercy and grace and redemption of God were intended to flow, not just to his own family, but to all of Israel. He was furious and did nothing. And so we feel furious. We feel furious that this father, this king, this representative of God would feel nothing and do nothing. 
And then the voice of the Holy Spirit comes and gently says, what about all the times, Gareth, you felt furious and did nothing? What about all the injustices you've seen and felt furious and did nothing? What about all the injustices you saw and you didn't even feel furious? What about all the injustices, oh, perhaps not sexual assault, but rage towards your brother that has the same penalty as murder, seeing a hot woman walk down the street and imagine her in bed with you, that's the same as committing adultery because it's in your heart. What about all the injustices you've done? The Holy Spirit comes and says, you can't be furious with David until you're furious with yourself. Take the plank out of your own eye before you try and do something about the speck in your brother's eye. And so we are left with broken identity, broken from birth, reshattered by life, sexual assault worse of all. Not able to simply get over it, not able to deny the shattering of self leading to a life of Tamar's desolation. Every time we try to tell ourselves we're not people of shame, we don't believe ourselves. And not able to redeem one another. There's a section of Isaiah 59 that I wanna read. And as I read this, think of the story of Tamar Perhaps think of your own story. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We'll growl like bears and moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice but find none, for deliverance but it is far away. For our offenses are many in your sight and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. Do you see the problem? We are hurt and broken and bruised and assaulted so we look for justice. We look for deliverance. But it's so far from us we can't reach it. Everywhere, darkness, Strength, weakness, blind men groping. And so we growl and we moan. Why can't we find it? Where is righteousness? Why can't we find it? Because we don't live near it. Because we've driven it back. We've made it stand in a distance. We've put up a no entry sign to honesty and shoved truth out of town. Because completely besides what has been done to us, we know deep inside, I turn my back on God. I try to run the world, my life as king, not him. Everywhere sin, everywhere rebellion, everywhere hurt, everywhere brokenness. But Isaiah doesn't end there. He continues. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice he saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. 
He put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay. Wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord. And from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you, and my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children, and on the lips of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. Tamar couldn't do it. David couldn't do it. Absalom couldn't do it. I can't do it. You can't do it. So his own arm achieved salvation for him and his righteousness sustained him. God sees and is appalled, not just at the sin and shame and disgrace, but that there is no one to intervene for his beloved. So he suits up himself. He puts on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He puts on the garments of vengeance and wraps himself in zeal as in a cloak. So often in our Western world, we struggle with this notion. According to what they have done, so will he repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord, and from the rising of the sun, they will receive his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. Surely, if there is one place where we wish to see wrath on enemies and retribution on foes, it is in the life of Tamar. If God is not infinitely more furious and moved to action than David at what happens to his daughter, then how dare we say this is a good God? We read the story, and in our own stories, and in the stories in our community and our nation, we long for justice. We long for righteousness to overtake wickedness. If there is one place we can begin to understand how a loving God can be angry against sin and sinners, then surely it is right here. Tamar is raped by her brother. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you. And my words that I put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children and on the lips of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. Listen to how Jesus' friend Peter describes this new covenant, this new relationship that God promised and Isaiah would come by his spirit. Peter gets to see it outworking among God's people. He writes, but you are a chosen people a holy nation, 
God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Some of you right now might need to receive this by faith. The reality of what Jesus has done for you, despite how you feel inside. Receive it by faith. Amnon discards Tamar. Get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door. You are God's special possession. Amnon leaves Tamar with her robes of royalty and privilege torn and discarded, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Amnon leaves Tamar desolate in darkness. You declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Amnon cuts Tamar off from her father and family, but now you are the people of God. Amnon leaves Tamar's life with nothing but the promise of vengeance upon vengeance, violence upon violence, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Gareth, isn't this just more positive self-talk? Anders Nygren writes, that which in itself is without value acquires value by the fact that it is the object of God's love. God's love brings something new into your life. This is the opposite of positive self-talk. This is the concrete reality that Colossians 1 speaks of. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. This is not positive self-talk. This is the cold, hard reality of Isaiah 59. Blind men groping, growling and moaning. Why can't we find it? Where is righteousness? Why can't we find it? But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Christ's physical body through death. Mocked, shamed, displayed naked in all humiliation and disgrace on the busiest road into the city. Jesus does not look at shame and disgrace and sexual assault from the outside as a bystander offering advice. No. Jesus plunges into the pit of human depravity, taking all that has and could ever be thrown onto you into himself to claw and drag out of sin and pain and shame and despair those who are his. You can do nothing. He has done everything. Where you had shame, you are now presented holy in his sight. Where you were marred and broken, you are now without blemish. Where beyond anything else that had been done to you, you yourself felt your offenses ever with you. Now you are free from accusation. You are not what you think of yourself. You are not what others say you are. You are not what has been done to you. You are not even what you wish you are. 
You are who you are loved by, and his love creates beauty out of disgrace. There's a number of ways that you might need to respond to this. Maybe your response to this might even need to be a process, an ongoing. But I wanna offer just one way that we're gonna respond this morning. The band can make their way forward. Gerhardus Voss writes about seasons like this. What the Lord expects from us at such seasons is not to abandon ourselves to unreasoning sorrow, but trustingly to look sorrow in the face, to scan its features, to search for the help and hope which as surely as God is our Father must be there. In such trials, there's no comfort for us, for us as long as we stand outside weeping. If only we will take the courage to fix our gaze deliberately upon the stern countenance of grief and enter unafraid into the deepest recesses of our trouble, we shall find the terror gone because the Lord has been there before us and coming again has left the place transfigured, making of it by the grace of resurrection a house of life, the very gate of heaven." Or as Vessel put it when he led two weeks ago, take the thing you are most afraid of that brings you the most shame, the most guilt. Let it become as big as it can possibly be, as scary, as shameful as it can possibly be. And then see it in the light of what God has done. And his rescue from it will be yet another reason to praise him.